This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There have been eight times in American history when the president has died in office and the vice president has taken over. These were men who were not elected to be head of the country and in some cases weren't even the first choice of their own party. But yet they vastly changed U.S. history. The men included John Tyler, Millard Fillmore, Andrew Johnson, Chester A. Arthur, Theodore Roosevelt, Calvin Coolidge, Harry Truman, and Lyndon B. Johnson. A new book looks at what these men accomplished and why half of them were actually reelected. The book is titled Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America. It's written by Jared Cohen, the CEO of Jigsaw at Alphabet. Cohen also spent five years as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and was a close advisor to both Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Rodham Clinton. Jared, pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I have to ask at the top, in looking at all these examples, uh, one that came to mind that was not included uh, was Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Yes, I, I debated this when I when I went out to, to start writing the book. And what I concluded is the thing that was most interesting and most compelling was the unexpected and abrupt transfer of power. Okay. Whereas, you know, if you look at the Nixon to Ford transition, um, the transition didn't happen upon the death of the president. It was sort of drawn out. It was, you know, uh, it, it, it was related to scandal and, and right. resignation. And it's that abrupt, dramatic, unexpected death in office that throws the country into a tailspin and abruptly elevates a man who nobody thought was going to be president. In the case right. of Ford, so long as the Watergate uh, hearings were happening, and in the lead up to it, people began to experience the idea and get used to the idea that Ford might become president. So, it, it, and as I mentioned at the top, four of these gentlemen that you write about in the book actually uh, were reelected. So, we have some examples here uh, of vice presidents who became presidents who did a very good job, but also you have examples uh, of ones that didn't have a great time as the as the chief executive. That's correct. And I think what I'm struck by in writing this book is how we basically winged presidential succession. You don't have the 25th Amendment formalizing the fact that the vice president becomes president um, when their predecessor dies in office until after JFK is assassinated. And so you get these men who are thrust in power, who were thrown on the ticket either as a punishment in the case of Teddy Roosevelt or because they were the available man in the case of Millard Fillmore. But in each instance, they rose to the pinnacle of power at some of the most seminal moments in our history. So let's take you know, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is assassinated towards the tail end of the Civil War, and we're supposed to get his vision for Reconstruction. Instead, the bullet of John Wilkes Booth gives us Andrew Johnson, the last president to own slaves, who, instead of following Lincoln's path, ends up resurrecting many elements of the Confederacy. We're joined on the phone by Jerry Cohn, who is the author of the book, Accidental Presidents. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. What was the what was the impetus for wanting to do a book like this? Because it's interesting, I mean, your role as, as a CEO of Jigsaw, it sounds like American history is very much an interest of yours. Well, when I was eight years old, my parents bought me a children's book about the presidents. And when you're an eight-year-old and you're reading a book about the presidents, it's supposed to be an innocent experience. But 
I zeroed in on the eight instances where a president died, and my poor parents had to have these conversations about death and assassination, and I never quite let it go. So when my wife was pregnant with our eldest daughter, I needed a nesting activity, and I decided <laughs> after a life of reading presidential biographies related to these abrupt transfers in power and collecting presidential memorabilia, including locks of presidential, presidential hair, which is weird until you... Really? Um, I decided this was going to be my nesting activity. And, you know, there's something nice about being CEO of, a, of an organization in an industry focused entirely on the future and spending my downtime reading about John Tyler, Millard Fillmore, Teddy Roosevelt, yeah. Calvin Coolidge. It's very therapeutic and good for the soul. So who was, of these eight men, who do you think was, was probably the most accidental of the accidental presidents? Well, John Tyler certainly um, was the most accidental because the framers hadn't thought much about the vice presidency and didn't really want one in the first place. The vice president was added at the last minute as an electoral mechanism. And when William Henry Harrison dies after just 30 days in office, uh, John Tyler has to race back from Virginia because there's a debate that ensues with the cabinet the in- that he inherited about whether he's the president or the acting president. He has to spend his first months in office debating with Congress why he's not acting president. He ends up setting a precedent that you know, is followed seven more times, including all the way up to LBJ. LBJ becomes president based on the precedent set by John Tyler in 1841. And it ends up disastrous. Tyler, who's not really a Whig, but is thrown on the ticket to win Virginia, which they lost, and give a nod to states' rights, ends up getting kicked out of the party, and in a moment of political rage and animosity, decides to annex Texas and precipitate war with Mexico. Was was Harry Truman probably the the, the most predictable uh, of this group because of of the illness issues that that FDR had? Harry Truman was both the most predictable and, in many respects, the most ill-prepared for the moment. And when you read about FDR and Harry Truman, it's endlessly frustrating because Truman, during his 82 days as vice president, remember, he's thrown onto the ticket because the party bosses know FDR is going to die and they can't fathom the idea of Henry Wallace, who's seen as a Soviet sympathizer and ultra-liberal uh, liberal ending up as, as president. So Truman, during his 82 days as vice president, he meets FDR twice, doesn't get a single intelligence briefing, doesn't meet a single foreign leader, isn't briefed on the Manhattan Project, isn't read into the war. Um, and then he wakes up on April 12, 1945, finds himself as president at the height of the war in the Pacific. Um, you know, he's trying to figure out how to engage with Churchill. Stalin's reneging on every one of his promises from Yalta. And yet Truman ends up being a remarkable success. He has to make more seminal decisions in his first four, four months in office than probably any president who came before him. One of the the big themes in the book in, uh, surrounds the 25th Amendment, uh, which is obviously getting some conversation right now as well. But this goes uh, you know, back in time to the days of, of LBJ and JFK and obviously the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, and, and take us into it for a second, the importance you think that the 25th Amendment has really had potentially for the presidency if it is needed to be invoked, which it has been a couple of times in, in recent years for when presidents have gotten sick. So what's amazing is the 25th Amendment gets passed at the end of LBJ's administration. And the first time it gets put into motion is, uh, is, is actually not for the president, but the vice president. When Sarah T. Agnew resigns in office, um, you know, Richard Nixon uses the 25th Amendment to replace him with Gerald Ford and essentially pluck him from Michigan's 5th District. What, what, what's fascinating is 
you know, of the eight accidental presidents, six of the vice presidents who ascended nearly died in office themselves. Um, mm. And yet there was no provision for replacing the vice president of the United States until the 25th Amendment. So this was this sustained constitutional vulnerability that we left ourselves exposed to for most of the history of the republic. The time that the 25th Amendment should have really been put in place was when Reagan was shot. Yeah. Uh, when Reagan was shot in 81, um, the cabinet made a decision that, you know, it was a dangerous precedent for them to set to, to decide that Reagan was disabled. Um, and so they chose not to evoke the 25th Amendment. That's how you get the kind of Al Haig type moments. What's interesting is the 25th Amendment has only been exercised in terms of presidential disability um, for colonoscopies. Yeah. Um, we've literally yet to see an instance of the 25th Amendment being evoked to um, temporarily discharge the duties of president to the vice president for any instance other than a colonoscopy. George George W. Bush was one, and I believe President Reagan as well, correct? Yes, that's correct. We're joined by Jerry Cohen, who's the author of the book Accidental Presidents. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I guess when, when you look at all of these different examples, the, the, the JFK LBJ one is probably one of the most talked about and, and remembered because of its timing and also because of the fact that it was really in the di- starting to be in the TV age in, in, you know, being able to see the video of what occurred. But then you also have to go back to Lincoln because of, of how that played out, the assassination by John Wilkes Booth, and, and then also uh, his successor, Andrew Johnson. So when I interviewed Jesse Jackson for the book, he said that when he learned of JFK's assassination, he felt like it was a double assassination, one, the president of the United States, and two, civil rights. People expected LBJ to be a disaster uh, for the civil rights movement. And what proved to be true was that the Kennedys were prepared to pay lip service to civil rights, but they weren't really willing to back it up with real action, particularly not in the lead up to the 1964 election. So I do believe that, and I write about this in the book, that had you know, Kennedy not had Kennedy survived. I think it's very unlikely you would have had the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, you know, I also think that we overstate this idea that Kennedy wouldn't have gone down the same slippery slope in Vietnam that LBJ did. I think that that's largely architected by the guardians of Kennedy's reputation. You know, if you look at the history of succession in the, in in this country, um, we look at the assassination of JFK as this sort of you know, incredibly, you know, you know, dramatic moment in history because it's the most recent and it's also something that played out on television. But when you dig into the impact that assassination had at other, you know, times in our history, Lincoln, Garfield, McKinley, there was a similarly dramatic impact and sustained period of mourning that ensued. And we just have forgotten what that's like because we're in the longest period of time without a president dying in office. How do you believe that that Andrew Johnson should be remembered in, in his term, uh, you know, following Lincoln? So Andrew Johnson proved to be the biggest disaster of all of the accidental presidents. And when we look at how we winged presidential succession throughout history, 
we got more or less pretty lucky in navigating it through, except for the Andrew Jackson, or the, the Andrew Johnson moment. And it was a moment of great significance. You know, Johnson was put on the ticket in 1864 because at the time he was the only Southern senator who had stayed loyal to the Union. He wanted to put the Union back together so badly that his rhetoric on civil rights and punishment of traitors was even more forward-leaning than Lincoln. But once a racist, always a racist. And when right. the Civil War ended, um, Andrew Johnson... Um, you know, remember, he was the last president to own slaves. Andrew Johnson, you know, the, his true color showed, and he ended up you know, giving amnesty to almost everybody, delegating uh, civil rights to the states. It paved the way for the Black Codes, which were the precursor to the Jim Crow laws. And the interesting thing about Andrew Johnson, uh, uh, an amazing story that few people know, um, he was completely inebriated when delivering his oath of office as <laughs> vice president. And he yeah. basically stood up there completely hammered, um, insulting every single person there. Lincoln's hands are his head is buried in his hands. He can't remember the names of certain members of the cabinet. He slobbers all over the Bible with like a drooling kiss. And then Lincoln, to reduce the awkwardness when they go outside, points out Frederick Douglass, who at the time is the most famous ex-slave in the country. And Frederick Douglass writes in his autobiography that I looked at the glare in that man's eyes and I knew that he was no friend of my race. And what Frederick Douglass didn't realize is the glare in his eyes was that he was completely <laughs> hammered. Uh, but the conclusion was correct that Andrew Johnson was no friend of his race. But, I mean, then he gets put into office after Lincoln's assassination. And I would imagine, you know, he had to uh, he's, he has to be taken aback by the first by the fact that he was in there because of the fact that that the assassination of Lincoln was you know, was so shocking to so many people. And, and as you lay out, he, he did not have a, a great time as, as the leader of the United States. Well, one of the things I point out in accidental presidents is that in an era. So you look today in an era of social media, the vice president would know immediately that they're president. Um, in the case of Andrew Johnson, um, you know, the knock comes on his door, and he's supposed to be assassinated that night as well, except George Atzerodt, who was his would-be assassin, got drunk at a nearby tavern. So Andrew Johnson goes to the Peterson home where Abraham Lincoln is, is essentially on his deathbed, and everybody there knows Andrew Johnson is going to be president of the United States because everybody knows Lincoln is dying. Uh, but he's asked to leave the room because he's making Mary Todd Lincoln uncomfortable. Right. Then when he takes the oath the next day, Mary Todd Lincoln refuses to leave the White House for many weeks. She auctions off most of the items in the White House. And then a week later, Andrew Johnson ends up, you know, so incredibly ill that he ends up, you know, more or less on a deathbed. And they notify the president pro tempore, who's out west, a man named uh, Labine uh, uh, La Foster, um, and, uh, and tell him that he needs to rush back to Washington because Andrew Johnson might die. We're joined on the phone by Jerry Cohn, who's the CEO of Jigsaw at Alphabet. He is the author of the book Accidental Presidents uh, here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Then uh, of all of these gentlemen, is there one that is kind of maybe more under the radar that is a least talked about accidental president? Um, I think the one that's most interesting and least talked about and relevant for today is Calvin Coolidge, because if you look back at history, the most scandalous administration uh, in the history of our republic was the Warren Harding administration. You had Teapot Dome. You had yeah. a massive scandal at the Veterans Bureau. The attorney general was complicit in everything from fight fixing, stock manipulation, bootlegging, and various other shady activities. Um, and Warren Harding dies out west 
um, an incredibly popular man, but the scandals in his administration are a ticking time bomb that threatens to destroy the Republican Party and his administration. Calvin Coolidge ascends to the presidency. He finds out about all the scandals um, a couple weeks into the presidency. You have less than a year before the 1924 election, and the scandals break three months later. So Calvin Coolidge does something very clever, which is he cultivates an image of himself so boring and so irrelevant, you know, what's called silent Cal, that I couldn't have possibly been involved in any of this. Um, And what's interesting is whether he did that or not, and he sailed to victory in 1924, the economy was booming to such an extent in the 1920s that I don't think that Americans cared if it was Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover in the early years, whether there were scandals, whether it was clean, as long as the good times were rolling in and the roaring 20s continued, I think the lesson for today is that the economy trumps scandal. Chester A. Arthur uh, succeeded uh, Garfield, and and he was thought, I guess, that he was not going to have a great presidency. Uh, But apparently, I guess he did okay because of the the understanding that he had of Garfield's kind of path that he wanted to take the country, correct? So you have never seen a bigger 180 turnaround in the history of the Republic than the turnaround of Chester Arthur after he ascended to the presidency. James Garfield was the only man ever to get the nomination for his party and win the presidency without seeking it in the first place. Basically, when the party bosses got frustrated between a debate over Ulysses Grant and James Blaine, Garfield's name was thrown into the hat, and he ended up as the nominee against his will. He's one of the most beloved men in the country by both parties, by all sections, by all races, and then he's shot by an insane office seeker four months into his presidency. Chester Arthur was a machine politician who was so vain that he changed the year of his birth to seem younger, um, had spent his entire time as vice president undermining Garfield. I mean, he literally cared more about patronage in New York than he did his own administration and thwarted it at every, at every step. There's a scene where, Gar- where, where, where Chester Arthur and uh, machine boss Roscoe Conkling uh, barge into President-elect Garfield's room at one in the morning on the eve of his inaugural address to kind of intellectually rough him up. But when Garfield is assassinated, uh, Arthur has to more or less go into hiding for you know a month and some change because people are blaming him for the assassination since the assassin claimed to do it on behalf of Arthur. And then something amazing happens. Since we like to talk about trolling and trolling as it relates to the president today, Arthur is impacted by the very first average citizen to troll the president and get a reaction. A woman named Julia Sand, who lived on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, wrote him these long, you know, you know, multi-page letters telling him what a despicable man he was, but that there was still hope for him, comparing him to some of the worst characters in the court of Henry VIII. And we know that these letters had an impact on Chester Arthur because one day he showed up in his presidential carriage outside of her townhouse on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and came in and spent some time with her. How do you put where or I should say where do you put Teddy Roosevelt in this mix? I think that Teddy Roosevelt so Teddy Roosevelt is the only one of the accidental presidents who almost certainly would have ended up as president himself although LBJ was certainly qualified but yeah. he waited too long to to join the 1960 campaign. Um, Teddy Roosevelt is your classic example of somebody who ended up in the vice presidency as a containment strategy by New York party bosses who wanted to punish him by exiling him to the political equivalent of Elba. But Teddy Roosevelt was such an outsized personality for his day 
Um, two things happened as a result of his presidency. Um, one, he ushered in an era of progressivism that probably wouldn't have been ready for election in 1901 when he ascended to the to the presidency. He also, you know, fundamentally changed the scope of U.S. foreign policy. But we should consider ourselves fortunate that Teddy Roosevelt didn't preside over a war as president. Um, you know, if he w- if you put him in modern day context, he's as fascinating as he is crazy. Um, and, you know, his fascination with war and his love for war and adventure would have been a dangerous thing as commander in chief. You spent a chapter in the book uh, also looking at close calls. Uh, and obviously one of them, you mentioned it before, uh, President Reagan, uh, when he was shot by John Hinckley. How important is it to also cover that part of the story as well? It has a variety of different instances of those close calls where a president almost was killed. Yeah, I, I mean, I mentioned that one of my frustrations in writing The Accidental Presidents is that we didn't learn our lesson at any step of the way, and we allowed this constitutional vulnerability to sustain. When I talk about 19 close calls in addition to the eight presidents who were assassinated, or the eight presidents who died and four who were assassinated, um, these are legitimately close calls. We're talking about Andrew Jackson shot at point blank um, and the gun malfunctioning. Um, you know, we're talking about Gerald Ford shot at point blank and then a second time from a distance, one time the gun malfunctioned. There's an incredible story of FDR as president-elect. He's giving a speech in Miami in February of 1933. He's sitting on the back of the Buick in his three-car motorcade, and a man named Giuseppe Zangara, an Italian immigrant, fires five shots in 15 seconds at him. Um, a 100-pound woman named Lillian Cross saw him pull up the gun and smacked him with her purse. It thwarted his aim. He missed FDR by about three inches, ends up killing the mayor of Chicago who's in town, as well as you know three or four others. But this extraordinary woman in her purse saved the New Deal. And then there's an, another amazing story where President-elect Kennedy was stalked by literally a disgruntled postal worker. It doesn't get more cliche than that. <laughs> and he filled, his, he filled also his Buick. I don't know why Buicks keep making a, an appearance here, but he filled his Buick with enough, enough dynamite to blow up the entire city block um, outside of his house in, 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 in Palm Beach. Um, and he didn't end up going through with it because as Kennedy came to the door to go to church, um, he saw one of the Kennedy children there and felt bad. So he follows JFK to church, fills his pants with dynamite, has his hand on the trigger in his pocket and is ready to do it standing four feet away from the president-elect and then sees a bunch of children and once again doesn't do it. So it's extraordinary for all the talk about suicide bombing and so forth in the context of modern terror. We almost had one of our most famous presidents as president-elect killed by a suicide bomber. And, and, and it is something that should be noted, the fact that we've gone so long now without having a, a president assassinated. Obviously, there have been attempts uh, in recent years, but but we have not had one killed in office. And yet, isn't it amazing that as we enter the 2020 election, we have the oldest president ever in the history of the country, and two of the most serious contenders on the Democratic side are both in their late 70s. Um, so my conclusion is I still don't think we've learned very much from our history. We still treat the vice president as a marriage of political convenience when a candidate needs a bump in the polls. And I think right. if you look at you know the various gimmicks of coming out of the gate with a running mate or you know what was tried with Sarah Palin, with, with, with John McCain, um, you know, it's still you know, it's, it's so long as it's the sole choice of the campaign and not the choice of the party. 
um, it's going to continue to be viewed as an election ploy. What do you think that then could potentially be the impact of the of the Twenty Fifth Amendment moving forward, especially with what we've seen in recent uh, recent conversation ab- about uh, that amendment and, and surrounding President Trump by by people in Washington D.C. Well, one of the things that's really important is, is, is precedent, right? So once you have a situation, the, the very first time where the Twenty Fifth Amendment gets used to um, uh, to uh, replace the president with the vice president based on something other than, you know, serious illness um, or even, you know, sort of being under, you know, you know general anesthesia, um, you run a very, you have to be very thoughtful about that precedent. So even if you look right. at impeachment, you know, impeachment is used as a political tool because when the first impeachments against the president happened with John Tyler in 1842, um, it was used as a political tool by the Whigs to get John Tyler kicked out of his own party. And they didn't succeed in impeaching the president, but the radical Republicans did succeed in impeaching Andrew Johnson as a way to try to get him out of office. He was saved by one vote from conviction in the Senate. And I think if you just look at the partisan split of uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment, you also conclude that, you know, impeachment was used as a political tool. So we have to be very, the, the bar should be extremely high for exercising the 25th Amendment, and it should not be used as a way to say we don't like the president's policies and therefore the president must be mentally you know, disabled. Right. You know, I think that the, 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 that clause in the Constitution was imagined more for a scenario like when James Garfield sat on his deathbed for 80 days before succumbing to his bullet wounds or Woodrow Wilson suffered a debilitating stroke um, in his final year as president. It's a fantastic book, Jared. Uh, Congratulations on it, all the success with it, and we look forward to talking to you again uh, sometime down the road. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Jared Cohen, uh, CEO of Jigsaw at Alphabet. Uh, The book, uh, as we mentioned, is uh, titled uh, Accidental Presidents, uh, Eight Men That Changed America. It is a fantastic read. Uh, It is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.